Come on up. All right. Good morning, Christchurch. It is so good to be with you. I enjoyed uh, getting to just enjoy some fellowship with many of you last night at our dinner. Um, and I want to let you guys know that you're, you're not going to get out just sitting there listening to me talk this morning, FYI. Um, this, this first part, we're going to do two, two things together. We're gonna, I'm going to provide a presentation, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to go into a second set. And I just give you some idea of what that's going to look like. Uh, this one's going to be very informative. I really want to set some groundwork. Um, but it'll also be interactive. So I hope some of you have your Bible apps or something of that nature that where you can, because uh, I'm going to have a couple of you, a handful of you actually, uh, help me by reading some scriptures today. We're definitely going to be looking at a lot of, or at least enough scripture to, to, to need some help. Um, and there will be just a couple of these moments. But the, the, after the break, we'll come back and the second part is deliberately interactive. So as, we're, as I'm walking through this first part, I hope that you are thinking about questions um, because there's, there's something about this topic of friendship where we can go a lot of directions. Some of you were probably anticipating this weekend because you have situations with friendships or have had situations in the past and you have questions that result from your very personal stories having to do with friendship. There's so many things we could talk about and I just didn't want to try to steer that ship so much where we couldn't address some of the more niche things that you bring to this weekend. So that second portion will be very much a Q&A time together. I'll have some prompts if you guys are still kind of sleepy, haven't gotten all the coffee in yet, uh, but a time that I really want to encourage you uh, to, we'll have more of a dialogue in the second uh, section. But, um, but to just, to just get us started, started off, I was reflecting on my own life of friendship. Um, and like some of you, uh, college was great for me with friendship. Um, I made some really good friends in college. Um, and one friend in particular, one of my absolute best friends, was a girl named Jenny. And we uh, lived together and we took adventures together. And um, probably the biggest fight I have ever had with a friend, I had with Jenny. And I was thinking back to this, this epic fight that we had. Um, because it was, it, was, uh, it was about cantaloupe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it wasn't like we were throwing cantaloupes at each other, nothing like that. It was just, just like sliced melon. And I, I don't remember exactly what started, but, but we now just refer to it as a cantaloupe incident. It happened when we were on a road trip, and it escalated into several hours where we finally got to the point where we realized we have to stop or our friendship is over. And we never finished the fight. We ne to this day, we never finished the fight. We just said, truce, we're done. We will never speak of this again. And we haven't. We haven't. When people will ask us about like this portion of the road trip, we just go, we, we say nothing. We say nothing because we know that, that deep down, each of us still thinks we are right about whatever it is we were fighting about. Um, but I say that because I, 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 Father Cliff was so kind to give me this lovely introduction with all of these <laughs> great credentials. And I stand before you to say, I'm not an expert in this. Um, I, I come with a passion for this subject. I come with, um, uh, this has is, this is long been part of my field of study with the theology of intimacy, but at the end of the day, just another broken person standing up here talking to you about a very tender subject. Um, so I look forward to this. So with, with that in mind, um, will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this moment where we are all unified in your Holy Spirit. 
through the gift of your son. I ask now that you speak to us and move in us and make us a people of your kingdom. Give us all these things in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's dive in. Um, this is going to be really, if I think about friendship, I, I think about it like there's, there's a map. There's lots of trails. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of situations that we could go. So before we go off into the land of friendship, what I want to do with this first presentation is I want to sort of calibrate our compass. And that's what a lot of this is. And so I want to go ahead and start out with a question here. I'm going to click. Um, why is friendship important for the local church? I absolutely love that you guys created a weekend around this, but why is friendship important for the local church? Well, here is my answer and my thesis for today. Because intimate relationships are how we learn about and encounter the gospel, and friendship is the most foundational intimate relationship. Some bold claims here, right? Bold claims, but that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to unpack this. I'm going to come back to this again and again because intimate relationships are how we learn about and encounter the gospel, and friendship is the most foundational intimate relationship. So, do we know the gospel? Do we know the gospel? And you're like, oh no, a quiz, and we're all supposed to be Christ followers. I'm actually going to ask some of you to answer this question out loud for me, and don't worry, there's a lot of true and good and right ways to talk about the gospel, so I expect a variety of, of possible answers, and nobody's Jesus points will be revoked as a result of your, of your answer. So would anybody be willing to just give us a, just a summary in their own words? What, what is the gospel? Any brave souls? I will start calling on you. What's that? The kingdom is here. Thank you. That is a lovely summary. The kingdom is here. Whose kingdom? God's kingdom. Yes. Great. What else? What is the gospel? Other summaries in your own words. What's that? You don't have to die in your sins. Death has been overcome. That's great. Something back? Good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus. Yes. Love it. Beautiful. Let's hear a couple more. Anybody from this side of the room? Very quiet. Freedom from slavery. Freedom from slavery. Yes. Anybody else? One more? Our sin got in the way of our relationship with God, and God came down to make that relationship right. Our sin got in our way of our relationship with God, and God came down to make that relationship right. Yes, friends, uh, I, I grew up in a church where my answer to this question would have involved a drawing of like a chasm and there's like a cross that becomes a bridge. Some of you may be familiar with this, but these are all beautiful manifestations of how we understand the gospel. And there's, like I said before, there's a lot of actually good ways that we understand and articulate the gospel. But what I'd like to point out is that at the core of all of these, all of these answers is this concept of a relationship with God. So I, I love what Father Cliff gave us this morning because it tees up my talk very nicely. Um, relationship 
with God. How it's broken, how it's restored, how it manifests, the freedom that comes through that, God's kingdom reigning, all coming down at the apex of somehow this relationship with God. And as Christians, these are words that are probably familiar to you. Relationship with God, something you've heard before, almost like they're white noise in the background. Like, right, right, yes, we love Jesus, we follow Jesus, we have a relationship with God, the gospel relationship with God. But what I find is that this is actually a concept that is really hard to get our head around. What do we mean, a relationship with God? How do we begin to understand this? So in my own journey to kind of get us towards friendship, I think we have to start with this idea of how relationship is even a thing that manifests in the core of our identity as Christ followers. So I want to present three motifs in scripture that are, reflect intimate relationships. And this is something that is reoccurring. If we go to scripture and we look at this concept of relationship, we find all kinds of relationships, but three in particular that represent intimacy, right? Family, friendship, and marriage. And these intimacy motifs occur again and again and again in ways explicit to how God is communicating this concept of relationship, first and foremost, between God's self and God's people. But how does this work? So... We have a couple Bible verses, and I'm gonna have some of you stand and read them aloud for the group. Um, so, so let's start, let's start with, the, with the big one. And I also wanna to say before we read these, um, these are just examples. There are scriptures, all, there, there are passages all throughout scripture that articulate exactly what we're gonna to read today. But these are just ones that I like, some of my favorites that I believe articulate well why these intimacy motifs are in scripture. So let's start with the Ezekiel 16 one. With some brave soul, be like, yes, please stand and let's hear from our friend. Ezekiel 16, three through 14. And, and as, as, as you're hearing this, there's a lot of imagery. This is an Old Testament prophet. And I would love for you to just sort of take a moment to think about the imagery, the picture being painted in this passage, please. Ezekiel 16, 3 through 14. He <laughs> said, This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean. Nor were your brothers soft and wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to say any of the things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live! I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, and you were naked and bare. Later I passed by and I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered a covenant with you declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put 
appointments on you clothed me with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and put a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour and honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because the splendor that I have given you made you be perfect declares the sovereign Lord. Thank you. Thank you so much. Guys, can we give a hand? That was, that was quite a passage. Yeah. Thank you so much. So the idea of this imagery that's used between God and, and particularly with Israel, um, with marriage and love, these, I, I, this particular passage, because the imagery is so stark, is like a, why I like to, to choose it. But we'll talk about significance here in a second. Let's, let's skip to, to John 15, 12 through 17. It was a uh, reference this morning in the talk. Would anybody be willing to read the John passage? Great, thank you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Yeah, John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. Great, thank you. Another hand for another brave reader. All right, Jesus speaking about the nature of friendship very explicitly to his disciples. Okay, now the last one for the family motif, Romans 8, 14 through 17. Yes, great, thank you. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom to cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Thank you. Thank you. Another hand for our friends here. All right. To figure out what's going on in friendship, we have to first discover this whole thing happening in scripture. And if we notice these intimacy motifs, there is something happening in every single passage. And these are just examples, but it's all throughout scripture. It's more than just the nature of, oh, we're friends, oh, we're family, oh, we're spouses. There is a shift that is noted in all of these passages, a major shift that these intimacy motifs are used to highlight a shift in identity. No longer servants, but friends. No longer cast out near death alone, but claimed, chosen, 
and fully known, no longer slaves, but children. Something is happening. Something is happening where the Lord says, I need you to understand what I am doing in the world, what the movement of my kingdom is, and, it, and it's something so profound to who you are and how you understand yourself in the world that the only way I can really grow legs for you in this is to talk about this in ways that we can sort of tangibly relate to and access because there's something so important and transcendent about what God is communicating about God's self to us using this language of adoption and intimacy and belonging. Friends, these, these intimacy motifs, family, friendship, marriage, they didn't just sort of evolve out of human history because they make for a good functioning society. Our Lord created these. He came up with them. He established them and said, we're going to have a thing called marriage. We're going to have a thing called friendship. We're going to have a thing called a family. And yes, it's going to make for good, stable societies, but there's something else I need. I need to gift these to you because there's something you need to know, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to really know it, but this is the kind of God I am. And so I'm going to communicate to you using these motifs so that you can begin to understand something transcendent about my kingdom to you, but you can do it in such a way that you are living in and amongst these opportunities to capture this idea. And at the heart of it is this shift in identity, understanding who we are in Christ. So when we talk about friendship, when we talk about any type of relationship, we're not just talking about the externals. We're not just talking about how to do this well. We're actually tapping into something that is key to the gospel and indelibly bound up in who we are because of Christ on the cross. So let's, let's bring back to another thing that, again, Cliff teed up for me this morning. The great commandments. All right, well, can I get one more scripture reader to read this Mark passage? Mark 12. This is an easy one. Mark 12, 29 through 31. And Jesus answered, The first of all the commandments is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love thy Lord, thy God, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, Namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than thee. Great, thank you. Yes. We could probably all summarize this one if we've been in the church a long time. Greatest commandments, love the Lord, love your neighbor. Right? We learn this. These are sort of foundational. These are fundamental. Jesus says they're the summary of all the law. And it's another way that we get at this understanding of what it means to think about friendship. Um, I, I love uh, that Aristotle, um, early days, so Aristotle talked a lot about friendship. I don't know if you know this. Aristotle was one that comes with the foundational um, philosophical entryways into our understanding of friendship. In fact, so many of the church fathers who wrote on this for generations actually referenced him. But one thing Aristotle famously said is that we as humans can never be friends with gods. The friendship can't exist between humanity and supernatural beings. And we would probably agree with the sentiment of what's behind that. He's like, it's just too unequal. There's just no way friendship can exist between humans and God. 
And yet, our God, Yahweh, the triune God, our Lord Jesus Christ says, no, no, no. We are friends. We are friends, despite these differences, despite these ways, but we, we, we still rig with the challenge of the fact that it feels sort of weird to be, for human beings to be friends with something supernatural. And so we get to the heart of why we even engage in discussion about these human relationships. And I love how the greatest commandments frame is because it brings it all together. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbors as we love ourselves. And this is one of those little bits of the passage that's often overlooked. Love God, love neighbor as we love ourselves. Again, going back to that core understanding of identity and how we grasp this identity. But friends, this isn't just an excuse to focus on ourselves. It's not like, well, I'm gonna get myself right first, and then I can love God and love neighbors. That's, that's what that means, right? I'll, I'll first, first I love me, I love me some me, and then I love others. Actually, that's not what this is saying at all. It's really about learning that our identity in Christ is actually dependent on being in relationship with others. So going back to our friend Aristotle, he said, to be a good friend, you are first a healthy person in relationship with yourself as a start, but then you learn that in order to be a healthy person in relationship with yourself, you have to be in relationship with others. You can't just be over here in relationship with yourself and say, I'm good, feeling good about me today. The only way you can even begin to have an assessment of how to understand yourself is in relationship with others. So intimacy is used in the gospel as both the means and the end result of sanctification in relationships. We cannot go without it. There is something that the Lord is saying about his relationship to us and about who we are and about what the gospel has done, the gift of a new identity through Christ because of his death and resurrection, and it is dependent on relationships. It is created within relationships. It is bound up in relationships. You understanding yourself, you understanding the Lord, you understanding the gospel, you doing this whole Christian Christ follower thing. No one gets out alive on this. It all happens in the context of relationships. So we'll leave Aristotle behind and look instead at uh, Thomas Merton, who basically says the same thing. He says, the gift of love is the gift of the power and the capacity to love, and therefore to give love with full effect is also to receive it. So love can only be kept by being given away, and it can only be given perfectly when it is also received. You begin to see it, this centripetal motion, this reciprocity, this back and forth, this level of understanding, this level of access, this embodiment of understanding who we are, as Christ followers, being bound up in relationship. We need others to learn the gospel. And intimacy in particular occupies a special place, right? So let's talk about why we focus on intimacy. <laughs> why intimacy? Because there are transactional relationships. I have a relationship with my Uber driver. The contract is simple. I give him money and he takes me to my location without murdering me. <laughs> and we're all happy, it's a great transaction. And as long as we keep that contract, everyone's good, everyone's happy. But those are not intimate relationships. We can't just talk about relationship in relationship sense because there's all different kinds of relationships. We focus on intimacy, first and foremost, because the Lord focuses on it. But we can begin to unpack and see that we are created for intimacy. 
And I say intimacy and not just relationship, and I think this is important, and it's gonna be important specifically when we talk about friendship. See, from the moment we're born, we are hardwired for intimacy. We lay newborn children on the skin of their parents. Attachment theory, social scientists tell us that we start forming attachments immediately when we enter the world. And it never stops. It never stops. No one gets to old age and says, oh, I'm good. I don't think I need relationships or people or intimacy anymore. That stuff's for the young. No, no, we all, till the day we die, we are, how Kurt Thompson puts it, looking for someone looking for us. That, that whole journey begins to mature as we mature and we look for it in different ways and through different relationships. But from start to finish, we are hardwired for intimacy. And this is why we cannot just reduce the word intimacy to carnal or sexual relationships. Right? Because if we do that, if we say, oh, the intimacy that is so important, the most important intimate relationship that we are looking for is a kind of romantic relationship, we have artificially centralized that and neglected the fact that, that ultimately every one of us from beginning to end is looking for intimacy. If we narrow it down to one type of intimate relationship, we're going to miss out. We'll unpack that here more in a second. So we're created for intimacy, but wait, wait, there's more. Even before our story and our human story being born into the world, where does this intimacy idea come from? Well, it comes from before the dawn of time. It comes from a triune God before creation, the three-in-one mysterious relationship of the Godhead in God's self in abundance and in love and in relationship and in intimacy. Intimacy predates everything because it comes from what Fred Sanders calls the happy inner life of the Trinity. And so all of creation gets a taste of this, that abundance poured out into the creation of the world, into the creation of humanity, into the creation of relationships. Intimacy is deeply embedded in the DNA of the universe and of our Lord. So we are created for intimacy, but we are not all meant to be in sexual relationships. We are all created for intimacy, but that does not mean that we are all created for those types of relationships. So if we want to always equate intimacy with with these romantic relationships, we miss out on God's wide mission with the gospel. And I think this is important because as we turn now towards friendship, we often don't take seriously the idea of friendship as an intimate relationship. Friendship is a supporting castrol Throw a rock and hit a plot line of any movie or TV show where friendship is not central, but it is just the supporting, supporting level up to the core plot of the romantic pursuits, right? Culture is telling us this. This is what's central. This is what's meaningful. This is what's important. And friendship is nice, too, as, as a way of giving us context for your romantic relationships. How nice. So let's get back to why friendship is foundational. And this is where we land on why it is important for the local church. So first, and this is not exhaustive, but this is my favorite list here. Friendship is foundational because first and foremost, it is the most accessible form of intimacy. It's the most accessible form. It's not age specific. 
Children can have friends. Elderly people can have friends. Non-married people can have friends. Married people can have friends. Everybody can get friends. And if friendship is an intimate relationship and we are created for intimacy, then we have access. We have access to intimacy that we are created for in, in the most widespread way. And I think that is incredibly important because friendship allows us to combat loneliness. Let's talk, let's, friends, let's talk about loneliness for a second. I work with college students. I love asking them, why do you want to date? Why do you want to get married? Why do you want to get along with your roommate or seek out friendships? What's, what's at the core of this? Have you explored why you are even pursuing these things? And they have some really great, thoughtful answers. But let's not kid ourselves. The gas that is driving this car is a deep ache. For, I would bet all of us, the pursuit of relationship starts with a feeling of lack. Starts not out of abundance, but out of scarcity. Loneliness is powerful. And it can, it can warp our relationships because there are, there are things we would endure so long as we do not feel lonely. And lonely is a prime motivator. But I think, friends, as the church, we actually have a way of thinking about this that is so much more valuable than anybody else. What we get is an understanding that loneliness is actually part of a spiritual condition that we all share. So something that study after study after study tells us is that you and I can have wonderful, healthy, intimate relationships, be surrounded by them, and still feel lonely. It's not about circumstances, as it turns out. We can't fix it. We can't coordinate our lives well enough to where the loneliness just disappears and we never have to worry about it again. Loneliness is functioning on a different level. But we can understand what level that is because we already know, and Cliff already told us, there is an ache for that final connection to the one who makes us whole, right? It is still broken. The kingdom was inaugurated with Christ. We're in the already, but also the not yet, and we feel it in our gut. And so you can have nothing but wonderful, healthy relationships and still feel lonely because at the end of the day, we know that none of this will actually fully fulfill us. And this is good news. <laughs> this is good news because we can stop putting pressure on ourselves and the people we love to fix this for us. It takes the pressure off. We're all going to be a little bit lonely, but that is an orientation, an eternal orientation towards that desire for that full consummation, the second coming of our Lord. What brings all relationships up into that eschaton where we are finally and fully fulfilled. So if we know that loneliness is a part of the human condition, how are we to think about it when it comes to relationships? Because it is a pretty bad motivator. And I like to think about it. It's thirst, All right? I didn't uh, come up with this. This is actually a, a lovely sort of transposition of the encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. This idea that the ultimate thirst, the living water, is Christ. But at the end of the day, so I drink a lot of these. I drink a lot of water every day. I'm one of those annoyingly hydrated people. <laughs> yeah? Like I'll never see water again. I just have to carry it around with me everywhere like my ancestors did. I'm gonna drink this and I'm not gonna be thirsty. 
but I'm not going to find myself a few hours later thirsty and go, what? I'm thirsty again? I just drank water. No one thinks that, of course we're gonna be thirsty again and we're gonna drink more water and this is the pattern of our relationships. Relationships can be great for giving us relief from loneliness, giving us relief from the ache, but we would be a little off-put if we were to wake up the next day and say, I still feel lonely. Well, yeah, yeah, we know, we know why, but you know what? Good, healthy relationships allow us a relief from the ache, but if that's what they allow us to do, then we can put them in balance with what they are able to accomplish in our lives, and we are not putting massive pressure on them to cure our loneliness. There's a lot more, there's a whole sermon there. There's a whole sermon, friends, but let's just say this. Good friendships, good relationships, period, are not there to cure your loneliness. But they can help. They can help. And it's good because a lot of us feel lonely, but not all of us are going to get married or stay married or have good marriages. So another reason friendship is foundational is that it improves all other forms of intimacy. We have sort of this artificial centrality of romantic and sexual relationships, right? Our culture feeds it to us. And, and, and we do this as well, but I believe what should be there is actually friendship, and here's why. Young people, you want to date well, learn the art of friendship. Married friends, our relationships, our marriages are better because we learn the art of friendship. My husband and I would do a lot of premarital counseling because, again, college students. Do you know when wedding season is for college students? Always. <laughs> it never stops. Never. So we do a lot of premarital counseling with these sweet cherubs that we love. But we try to tell them, your marriage is going to, kind of like a pie chart, is going to be split up into different ways that you will be spending your time together as part of this relationship. There is the roommate part, right? The, the sort of relationship you have with your spouse that you would also be able to pattern with a healthy platonic roommate relationship. Uh, who's going to do the dishes? Who's going to take the car in? Who's going to be doing these things? You're, you're, you're navigating these things. That is a part of marriage, it's, it's a significant enough part of the pie. It gets a little bigger if you have kids, right? Who's picking so-and-so up? There's also the physical intimacy, the romance. That's, a, that's an important part of the pie, but it's a much smaller piece. This is not what's happening all the time. But when that happens, it is important. It's just time distribution does not allow that to be the main function of your relationship. What is actually probably the largest piece of the pie is not the roommate stuff, not the intimate romantic stuff, but your friendship together, your time together, the enjoyment of each other actually reflects a much bigger part of the pie. And when it doesn't, when the other parts start encroaching or gaining more importance, we feel that things get off balance because it's very hard to sustain either just a platonic roommate relationship or a full-blown ongoing romance all the time relationship. We realize that at the core is friendship. But a lot of us didn't Realize that to have good marriages, we need to learn how to be good friends. But what if we did? What if we learned the art of friendship? Our marriages would grow stronger and be better. Family life is improved with the art of friendship. Siblings teaching our young people how to be friends. For, for folks like myself who are navigating uh, life with my adult parents and having to switch over into what that looks like as adults, the art of friendship contributes to all of these things, and so it is a tide that raises all ships if we learn the art of friendship. And then finally, 
for our non-married friends. It gives so much more robustness to singleness. In fact, in many ways, one of the most important functions is that it dislodges romance idolatry. Romance idolatry, I love that term, isn't that great? I stole that from Peter Volk, who is another Anglican friend up in Nashville. But romance idolatry is something that the church should really take seriously. As a married woman myself, please don't hear me diminish marriage. That's not what I'm going to do. But in our churches, we have so many different people in so many stages of life. And yet, one of the most dangerous things that romance idolatry does is it places implicit value and identity on people. And we do it without even being explicit about it. So uh, at All Saints, we're a small little church plant. We meet on Sunday nights. I recently, being the deacon, I I just sort of uh, rally the volunteers. We're a volunteer-based effort, being a small church plant. Uh, Met with uh, one of our congregants. Uh, We don't have many boomers, so we're really excited when someone who is of the older generation comes and says, I want to get involved. So I was meeting with our one. And uh, as I was meeting with him, he wanted to get more involved in the church. But as it turns out, his situation is that in the mornings, he's at a local Baptist church with his wife and his kids. And then at night, he comes to get his Anglican fix uh, at All Saints, but he comes by himself. And as we were talking about him getting more involved, one of the things he articulated is the awkwardness of coming into the church as a singular person. Not even a single person. He's married. He has children, but it's there. And our single friends, they know this. I don't have to tell them this. They already know what that's like. They already know it's like coming in. Our widowed, our divorcees, people who come in, even even in a situation like his where he has a family, there's something about coming into the church where underneath it all, there's a hierarchy of value. And the church needs to create powerful counter-liturgies if we are going to combat this, if we are going to be a haven that, unlike the culture, does not place value and identity on people based on their marital status. And I think this is what the art of friendship does for us. I think it's why it's important that we talk about this as a local church. I think the local church has the mechanisms unique and necessary to do this, to allow the ability for us to push back against these dangers. Romance idolatry is infesting our culture with sex-centricity and hypersexuality, but it's that value piece, it's that identity piece that shifts us just off of the gospel that we know is the only thing that is supposed to give us value and identity. And so this is important. And so what happens when friendship becomes foundational is our single friends, and I, I really, I've wrestled with this. I don't like the word singleness. <laughs> I've struggled with this. I've had conversations with friends about this, like, there's some way else we can think about this. And, and something occurred to me recently, and I'd like to, to put it to you. It's still a little clumsy. But I want us to think about, and this is, this is particular for our non-married friends, but to think about the idea of people seeking families on pilgrimage. Right? which I think actually relates to all of us, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but the idea that we have people who are in a stage of life where they are actively seeking others, they are actively seeking family, whether that's through marriage, whether they're hoping to date, whether they're committed to a life of celibacy, whether they're widowed or divorced, but putting 
the art of friendship as fundamental, as foundational, dislodges romance ideology, but it also means for our single friends that they have access to family. They have access to intimacy. They have reliable people. I spoke with a dear friend of mine, she's 29. Uh, she got a nail in her tire. She's single. And she says, Aaron, it's just so much harder. I figure out how to get to work. I'm a single income person. I don't know much about cars. It is just so much added stress to get a nail in my tire. And she was explaining this to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm listening to her and trying to encourage her, and a week later, I get a nail in my tire. And you know what? I, I went home, I talked to my husband, we figured out I never skipped a beat. I never had to worry how to get to work or how we were gonna get it fixed or how we were gonna pay for it. We got it done so fast, and I thought about my friend and I thought, she needs people. She doesn't have a spouse, but that doesn't mean she doesn't still need people. Help. Think, life throws these things at us. It's not even necessarily about the romance. It is about having family. It is about having reliable people. It is about the fact that we have people in our congregations who are living under this little bit extra stress. And, and there are easy and simple and viable ways that we can raise and level that playing field and I believe getting serious about the art of friendship is at its core. What this does is it also provides viable alternatives to marriage. We talk about sex being for the covenant of marriage, and we have friends in our congregations who are celibate, and we don't know what to say to them. And we don't know what to tell them, and if we believe they're created for intimacy, it gets even more awkward. But if friendship is an actual relationship that we take seriously as a form of platonic intimacy, and we're able to support that and secure that in the local church, we give people viable alternatives to marriage, and it bolsters our commitment to chastity. So, how we understand our identity as the local church and how it connects to friendship. This is the last and most fundamental reason why I believe that friendship is central and foundational because it is how we understand ourselves as the church. So stay with me. So that John 15 passage that we've referenced quite a bit this morning, I remember reading that and I remember studying it for my doctorate. It was, I, was, I was actually doing a whole class on the theology of friendship and I'm reading this because it's the most explicit place in scripture where Jesus is talking directly and distinctly about friendship and he says some crazy stuff. Greater love has no one, no one, no one. This is a big deal. Greater love has no one. Friendship, boom, all right, Jesus. Friendship's important, yes. Someone lay down their life, yes. Oh, wow, this is, this is such good stuff. I just close myself to you. I call you my friends, all that stuff. You're just like, man, yes, Jesus, the icon, right? Jesus is friend, uh, yeah, Jesus, friendship. I was like, this is great. Let's hear some more. Flip, flip, looking through scripture, does word search. Did you know there's not much else about friendship in scripture? I mean, there's like, like friendships in scripture, but that explicit, that paramount, I thought, this is weird. Why would Jesus like put this on the top shelf, drop the mic and say, see ya, friendship. That's it, that's all you get, John 15. Everything else is just sort of incidental. And I thought, man, I guess friendship isn't as important as this seems. 
Jesus doesn't seem to talk about it. The Bible doesn't even talk about it. But then I realized, actually, the Bible talks a lot about friendship. And it took me connecting with some other scholars who had studied this to realize that there is a story. It's told three times in Scripture. It's told in Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, in Matthew 3, Mark 12, and Luke 8. The same story, and it's one you might be familiar with, but never really thought about in connection to friendship. Jesus is preaching to a packed house, and his mother and his brother show up. And they're trying to get to him, but they can't get to him. So they get a message to him. And so someone gets a message into the interior of the house where Jesus is preaching. And they say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, who are my mother and brothers? Right? Kind of a weird thing. Makes us a little awkward at first when we read it. And he looks around to his disciples and he says, these people, my followers, my friends, these are my mother and brother and sisters. Now, don't hear Jesus trying to diss his biological family, but he does something in that moment that is so profound. It alters the way the church thinks about itself as the church throughout history. Christian friendship is family. And the Bible has a lot to say about family. How do we think about Christian friendship? How do we think about it in terms of the local church? Friendship is family, not just any family, it is chosen family, and this is of particular importance. And we see this, we see this all throughout church history, but but we don't even have to look very far. Think about your baptismal vows. Think about what it means to come into the church, that threshold that you step over through the sacrament of baptism. We as Anglicans have a beautiful baptismal liturgy. If you haven't looked at it, I recommend it in the Book of Common Prayer. It is so wonderful and so robust, but there's something that happens in baptism And there's something about the use of water. And this is so important because water is is so tangible, so visceral. I love that sacraments have these these, textiles that we can connect with. And we use water. And if you look at our liturgy, water symbolizes a lot of different things. But one of the things that we think about it as is because what we are doing in baptism is we are basically using tangible materials to recreate a spiritual idea of birth. Of birth. That's a lot of what's happening when we're doing baptism. And the reason I know this is if you go back to the earliest baptismal fonts that we know about from the early Christian church, they were shaped um, anatomically, womanly, to suggest, not so subtly, birth. I didn't bring pictures. This is not that kind of retreat. But, but you should know that the early church was not subtle about the idea that what we were doing with baptism was birth. <laughs> the water, every, everything else. Feels a little icky now, doesn't it? It's not, it's beautiful, just like all birth. But you are birthed and received into what? A family. We explicitly say that in our liturgy. We receive you into this family of God. That is how we think of ourselves, church. That is who we are. That is our identity. And friendship, Christian friendship, is lived out as family. I'm going to land here because this is what takes us off in multiple directions. How do we do that? What does that look like? How does family show hospitality to each other? How does family exist? What does that mean? But I want to just give us an imagination for this by saying at the end of the day, we get to be people who, if 
We have great biological family, wonderful. They are welcome in the family of God. But for many of us who have broken relationships, who maybe don't have family, everybody gets a family. The church gets, Jesus did something so profound when he said, this is how you understand yourself. You are a chosen family, a people blessed with the location of God through the housing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit brought together in unity. That means we, just, we don't have to just succumb to the broken attachments we're dealt. We don't just have to succumb to the broken attachments we're dealt. Everybody gets a family. Think about it. How wild would this be for the local community? The widowed, the divorced, the struggling marriage, the person who lives alone, the young parents struggling little ones, the elderly, the celibate, the teenager not getting along with their parents, no one is left out. No one. And no one is valued. No one's value is ranked based on their relationship status or age. The art of friendship manifests as a chosen family so that, we, so that what we learn about family allows us to live this out as the local church. And in doing so, we are absorbing and encountering the gospel. Don't forget, we don't just do this to create a nice society. We do this because in doing so, we encounter the kingdom in these relationships. That's what we're aimed for. So we do this as a family because we are learning something about the gospel and we are living out the gospel and we are encountering the gospel and we are absorbing the gospel and we are reflecting the gospel in these relationships. And so the gospel grows legs and allows us to live together. But we are created for intimacy, church, and that matters in how we understand the fact that friendship is a way for us to give that to everyone. And we have the mechanisms as the local church to actually make that true. Okay, I've laid a lot on you. We're going to take a break. I have a slide for that. (laughs) Let's take a break, and we'll come back. Fifteen minutes. I've got a 